So the more indigenous Peruvian women are more likely to have the HER2 positive breast cancer. And this is important because you can um, give a drug that targets HER2 um, and it's not always used. Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. Last week, we discussed how high levels of stress can influence the development of cancer. This week, we explore another risk factor in cancer development, genetics. A person's family or place of origin, even dating back years and years, can influence that individual's risk for certain types of cancers. Dr. Laura Fehedman, an associate professor at the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine, joins Salute Talks to discuss her research into genetic and non-genetic factors that contribute to breast cancer risk and prognosis in Latinas. Dr. Fehedman, can you give our audience a little bit of a background on, on, on who you are, what got you to where you are today, and why you're doing what you're doing? Yes. Um... I'm an associate professor in the Division of General Internal Medicine at UCSF, um, but I'm actually uh, not an MD, but a PhD, a researcher, and an anthropologist. Um, I studied in the University of Buenos Aires when I was young. I did my undergrad there. I studied social anthropology, and then I moved for my PhD to Oxford, England, and there I discovered that I was more interested in understanding biological differences between populations and what that meant for health than uh, working on the, the social cultural aspects at all. And I did a master's and then a PhD more focused on genetics, population genetics, and then uh, specialized in population genetics and epidemiology. Um, and the reason I ended up working on breast cancer genetics in Latinas is that I, my, I had the skills to work on the genetics of mixed populations. Uh, I had worked for my PhD on uh, hypertension in African-Americans, Jamaicans, and Nigerians and comparing genetics. And I, I discovered that the, there was a person working on genetics, admixture genetics, and breast cancer in the Latina population. And I went there to do my postdoc because it felt like it combined my skills with me being a Latina and feeling that that's important for me. And breast cancer, which is the most common cancer in women. My grandma died of cancer at age 40. Um, So it it was a perfect combo. Makes sense. Something that I find is interesting is that um, in both areas of your academic interest, whether it was anthropology or genetics, um, it, it seems that you have an interest in studying what makes people who they are, you know, first being socially and now this one's biologically. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that interests you? Yes, I grew up, uh, my my family was very progressive. Uh, we were taught that your life had to have meaning and it couldn't be about making money. So I'm not saying that it's bad to want money, but that's that was like the same way people grow in, into religion. I grew into this idea that you have to have an impact and you have to be a good person. So it has to be positive impact. And therefore, I wasn't thinking of a career in business. or At the time also, I couldn't think that business, you could help people. That's not the way we, you think when you're 16. 
So I, I, I was very curious about differences in beliefs between peoples. I always, I was curious about um, religion since I'm very little and why people believe this and not that and what makes you have faith. And so anthropology seemed perfect because it, it was a way of learning about different cultures, different beliefs and cosmovisions and explanations of the world. It had that curiosity, like what makes people believe what they believe. And then once you are into the anthropology career for five years, you discover that it's also interesting to understand uh, how people evolve, where we come from, who are our ancestors, etc. So, Yeah, that's wonderful. And so going into that evolutionary mindset, can you define for listeners who maybe have no idea that um, even different groups of people, based on your race or ethnicity, um, that your genetics might be different. Can you kind of like break that down and explain how, where you come from? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So the f- one of the first things you learn in biological anthropology class is that there's different hypotheses of where human populations come from. But when I started, the strongest hypothesis was the one that was being supported by the first genetic studies that were coming up saying there's clear evidence when we look at the variation in the DNA of people that we all come out of Africa. So that's kind of day one of biological anthropology. And then, you know, there's been changes in my first day in that class, there's been changes in like how long ago did the Europeans split with the Asian populations, but it's always the same. It's basically all humans are, brought, are coming from original populations 150 or 200,000 years ago. Like this is modern, modern versions of humans, not the more ancestral versions. And then at different times, they migra- little groups migrated to different regions in the world and populated these regions. And those were kind of subgroups of representing genetic variation in a different way, because the same way if you have a bag with uh, 10 balls, different colors, and you have maybe three red and four green, then if you take a subsample of three balls, maybe you happen to get all green just by chance. And so now you have this new group of green balls, but originally came from this big soup of balls of colors. So I think that's how human evolution works in terms of population differentiation. And um, then you evolve in relative isolation for thousands of years. And so you have some variation that becomes more prevalent in one group, either because of it might have an advantage in terms of your phenotype, the weather, the available food, you know, retention of salt, if you have less access to water, things like that, or exposure to viruses. And that can also change profiles in genetics. But, but it's mostly chance. You, you got these three green balls, <laughs> and now we're different if you look at the details of the DNA. But we're so similar. It's like we're mostly the same. Now we pay attention to the differences because, you know, we know that there's some information there about diseases or relationship between populations, but most of the DNA is the same. Yeah. No, that really makes sense. Um, and so how does that information inform the research that you've done about breast cancer and the development of that? So breast cancer has lower incidence in 
Latin, a woman from Latin American origin, and I say it like this because we do research in the U.S. and we say U.S. Latinos, but that's a very heterogeneous group, and we know there's variation. So in, in many Latin American populations, and I'm going to say in relation to ancestry of those populations, there is lower incidence in the more indigenous groups actually. So when you look at U.S. Latinos in California, incidence is very low because it's mostly Mexican or Salvador with high indigenous American proportion. If you look at other populations like Cubans and Puerto Ricans, the incidence is higher. I was interested in why the more indigenous Latinos have lower incidence. I thought that could have something to do with genetics. It, it's actually the incidence in California for Latinos is in between that of women of European origin in the US and uh, the data we have about Native American populations. And I thought the genome of Latinas is half and half. So maybe, and this is, I was working with Elad Siv at the time who was thinking, we were thinking on, uh, about this. He had a grant and we thought, let's look at the association in Latinas between ancestry and breast cancer risk. And we found that Within Latinas, if you measure proportion of ancestry, the more European higher risk and the, the more indigenous had lower risk. Then we got more samples because genetics is all a game of power. And we were able to ident we identify the barrier. And it was an article we published in Nature Communications in 2014. It's a journal. Um, uh, and, and we discovered one variant near the estrogen receptor 1 gene, which is this gene that is related to breast cancer risk, and we know it, and, and is more uh, prevalent in a Latina woman than it, it's not, it doesn't exist in Europeans. And it's very, very extremely low frequency in Asia. We see it in one or two people in a big sample and non-existent in the known uh, African populations that have been analyzed. You know, we're talking about samples. So it, and so then we associated that mutation in particular with the indigenous American component. And it's protective, it's quite protective. It's a common variant, so it's not like one of those genes that determine if you have or not have a disease. But uh, we don't see a lot of cancer cases that carry this variant that we discover. So um, one of the comments that you made um, that I would love to hear more about is you said uh, genetics is a, is a game of power. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So when you try to find genes that predispose to disease, we, we used to look at how disease segregated or was transmitted within families. So you would get many, many family members and many, many families with some people with cancer and some without. And you could do some, use some techniques in the lab to, to follow the, how the DNA correlated with the trait. And then you would say, oh, this, this piece of information in the DNA seems to always be present in the cases, but not the controls. And that's how we would discover a gene, like a BRCA or, you know, high penetrance gene. When you're looking for genes that, if mutated, have a smaller effect on risk, and this is a whole area of excitement right now, is combining mutations that have lower frequency or that, high, sorry, they have high frequency but low, low effect size, 
uh, most people might carry this variant, but only a few develop the, the disease if they carry the variant. Or you can have people without the variant who develop the disease. So it's not like you know one thing or the other. It's probabi probability. You combine all, all these things, and now you can say the person at, at the top 1% who carries for these 100 genes, they happen to carry the bad allele, the one that increases your risk. They, for all the 100 genes, that person now, you can say, has a relatively high risk of developing breast cancer. Um, and so when you now have to look at variants of small effect that are common, if you look at 100 people, you won't get any information. Um, also, uh, you know, you need to have cases and controls in this kind of design. So you need to have a lot of people who have breast cancer, and then there'll be some people with one variant, some people with the other. So for you to be able to discover the different variants with different allele frequencies and, and different effect sizes, you need to have more and more samples so you can actually see a significant difference between cases and controls. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as a research powerhouse that fuels Salud America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salud.to backslash IHPR. Thanks. And so from that perspective of power, is it um, something that uh, we've talked about with some of our guests previously is that mm, there is a very large gap, a, a disparity in those who are included in medical research? And is that a part of that as well, is that it's a, it's, it's a game of power because there is a lack of representation from communities who do, are, not, are not represented at the national scale? It's interesting. When I said a game of power, I was thinking about statistical power. Mm. But you can also think about political power or society, you know, like the, how, val how valuable a population is for those making decisions of how we spend money yeah. on, on health research. So yes, it's, a, it's also we've been trying to diversify the data sets that we have. For breast cancer in particular, right now there's a consortia. Uh, this is no one's fault, right? There's been cohorts and studies conducted in Europe who happen to be full of Europeans, and um, they have a lot of data sets, and they combine them and then collaborate with some groups here, and now they have 200,000 samples that they can study. Even, you know, you have Australia too, you know, more developed countries with a lot of studies. They have huge power for conducting studies in genetics. 
Now you look at uh, how many Latinos are in these studies. There's no Latinos. So you have to pull together the smaller studies that you have, or in a cohort, you might have a hundred who are Latinos. So you pull those together for a Latino study of breast cancer genetics. And we are at the, we're trying to do this now, and there's support from NIH to diversify um, data sets. But we, we are not even close, even with, with intention, what's available because of the history of how we build these data sets, what's available and we can pull together is still not enough. We, have, we can have 40,000 samples. But for breast cancer now, to find the variants of very small effects, you need 200,000 or 100,000 or 150,000. So how do we get there? Right. Yeah. I've been proposing for a while to really collaborate in Latin America. In Latin America, you have a lot of people who want to do research and learn things about their populations, and they have access to the population. There's big hospitals, there's smaller hospitals um, that might already have uh, um, blood banks with samples that you could look at, controls, they have repositories of tumors from patients. There are thousands, but they don't have the funding because they are low or middle income countries uh, without something like NIH. Um, and their version of NIH uh, maybe is focusing a lot more on controlling viruses or um, other kind of issues that might be more urgent, you know, bringing water that is clean or, you know, things like that. Even though there's, at this point, many countries in Latin America, probably most of them have cancer research going on. It's just a different scale yeah. and different priorities. You might want to do a lot more cervical cancer prevention, focus on HPV vaccine, but have less resources to do the sophisticated analysis for precision medicine treatment yeah. of cancer. Wow. Yeah. So can you give listeners an insight into how the work you're doing, the research you're conducting, how does that go to change the way medical professionals are treating breast cancer, especially for the Latina community? The work I do particularly is more focused on risk uh, assessment uh, for stratified prevention, really to be able to eventually tell people if their risk is average or is higher yeah. Um, and then that would determine how often they do a mammogram, for example. Yeah. I'm starting to do work on uh, tumors uh, from breast cancer patients in Peru because the, this Peru population is uh, very rich in the indigenous American component. They, they had a history where, as opposed to other countries, where the indigenous populations were exterminated on purpose. <laughs> um, uh, in this case, they, you know, they had larger numbers of indigenous populations when colonization happened, but also they, 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 they were not systematically killed. And so it's 80% or 70, between 75 and 80% indigenous ancestry if you take samples from Lima, which is a very diverse city. 
Um, and we're getting, uh, through a great collaboration with people at the, uh, Tatiana Vidaure, the main collaborator at the Instituto Nacional de Enfermedades Neoplásicas, we're able to sample some of the tumor and then sequence, mm. uh, looking at the RNA, so gene expression profiles, trying to see if the Im immune profiles of the Peruvian tumors differ to the ones we see uh, for example, in non-Hispanic whites or African-Americans. The thing is that is these things are very challenging, and I'm, I'm trying to think a lot about this because you're sampling, um, you, know, the, you know, you're getting a sample from a tissue that has been fixed in paraffin. Then you're trying to compare to TCGA, which is a database that was done with fresh uh, frozen tumor tissues, so you have all these uh, technical difficulties that you have to overcome. And maybe at the beginning, it's going to be more a question of looking within Peru. And then uh, if you show some interesting patterns or difference, then you can convince uh, funders to say, can we do this in a way that we can actually compare to the other groups the way we do it here in the U.S. There's working in Latin America, and being able to work with people and learn about these populations to eventually learn about the tumors and do treatment that's specific for particular profiles, which I think is what you were asking. Yeah, I think we're not there yet in the sense that we don't have so much data that allows us to control for different factors, stratify by difference, you know, when was the tumor diagnosed that might change things. So it's like this back and forth uh, until we can have this, the, the, the structure and the quality of the data that we want mm -hmm. for our populations. But yeah. that, that needs a lot of development. It's not like you can just go and make it happen. Yeah. How are researchers such as yourself advocating for more funds, more, um, you know, support from these bodies to continue conducting that research? Well, so by collaborating with uh, those who are closer to the money, I guess, um, and, and then, uh, for example, I'm now part of uh, Confluence, which is an uh, NCI effort to uh, conduct a very large genome-wide association study of breast cancer in a multi-ethnic sample. So it's 300,000 cases and 300,000 controls is the goal. And they are so interested in diversity now that they, were, they are trying to get a Latino cohort to be part of this and an African-American group. And we are all sitting at the table in the scientific steering committee. And they are actually supporting, and resources are limited. No, you meet these people, and it's not like they don't want to give resources. It's like they get a certain amount, and they have to work with it. But they are giving us some support to develop a structure of a consortium. So my contribution is I'm trying to help put together a consortium of Latino American investigators and US investigators working on Latinos to combine all our samples. And then once we have the structure of collaboration, we can ask for resources with a more solid basis. This is what I was letting you know, is you have to be flexible at the beginning and allow people to start collaborating from Latin America with whatever they have right now. We make it happen, we get it going, we start exchanging knowledge 
So you create the capacity there and then we can do more and we can attract more money. Because the problem is if you don't have the right conditions, then the money will not come. Mm. Progress has to start somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is um, you'd mentioned that um, something that's so vital to the work you're doing is having everyone at the table. Can you provide your personal beliefs on why, in these studies especially, it's so important that you have all of the different representatives of their community at the table talking about this issue? I think scientists are curious, but curiosity is not enough. And experience and passion, passion that comes with fighting for what's yours, I guess, is a bit of a selfish thing humans have. Mm. Um, I think combining the scientific curiosity with those other components is what makes great science. And so if you have someone who's a great scientist and has a lot of curiosity about how tumors might be different by race ethnicity, but they don't have the experience that the people with those tumors might, <laughs> might have had throughout life, or they don't have the passion, they might not get to do certain things or they might not see them or they, they, they might be only thinking in a particular direction. And so having a diverse set of people, and including people who are stakeholders, that's how they call people who have this selfish interest. <laughs> it's like, I, you see yourself there, right? You're, right. So the, when you don't see yourself, you need to have someone who is that self, the, the stakeholder, the one who will be impacted by what you do. And you, it's hard for basic science when you meet with people who are in the community and you're trying to see, it's not obvious to begin with, like how are they going to enrich my research questions who are, which are so specific, so technical. And then you realize that they are not helping you with the technical aspects of your research, but they are asking you the really hard questions of, Laura, oh, that sounds interesting. I like evolution, and I like to know that we, you know, I come from Africa. But how is that going to change, you know, how someone treats my cancer, and how that is going to make my life longer and happier? And having just having those questions changes the way you refocus your research. When I set up the study in Peru, one of the things was let's try to get some tumor tissue because I can do a lot of population genetics and learn about risk. But really, wouldn't it be cool to see if there's something we could target with a drug that could help Peruvians? So you can do both. But if you don't have that stakeholder there to to ask you why do we care about what you're doing, then you might not... You might just keep going, you know, doing your thing. So it's um, about um, having a sense of unity um, and everyone who's kind of like working toward a similar goal, but from different perspectives. Yeah, and the big, for me, it's the big picture questions. I work yeah. with community all the time for different things I do. And at the beginning, sometimes you're like, oh, they don't understand. why. How can they ask why this is important? It's yeah. so obvious to me. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, Really? Do I know exactly why this is important or what should, 
what should I be doing? I was asking myself those questions, working with Isabel Duron many years ago, she's a Latina advocate, and, and I started doing some outreach and trying to teach Latinas about hereditary breast cancer and what genetics are and what's a mutation and what are the chances you inherit a mutation if your mom has one. Yeah. And that would not have happened and it has changed the way I see myself as a scientist. And I can only imagine where that information goes in the future to like completely change how people are dealing with healthcare, right? Things are becoming more and more individualized. Yes. And eventually with the research you're doing, that's gonna lead to a point where um, based on your genetics, based on your like other factors, right? Like your family history, things like that, but it's all gonna kind of go to help to provide the best form of care possible. Yeah, and one of the things we are the 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 people are trying to do who work with the Europeans is start to predict not just cancer, but predict which subtype you're gonna be more likely to get if you get it. Mm. Um, and that has to do with precision prevention. You're right. Um, and it, you know, it could take a long time to to predict HER2 positive breast cancer, but in this case, it's really important because there are not a lot of non-genetic factors that we know that are associated with this particular subtype. It's one of the ones that we don't know why some people are getting this one or not, the, the HER2 negative. Right. Um, for triple negative, there's been some epidemiological studies showing that if you have a lot of kids, very young, and you don't breastfeed, you have increased risk, or you have some associations with body mass index. But for HER2 data, it's really not strong on risk factors. Thank you to Dr. Feherman for joining us in this discussion. To learn more about her and her work, visit this episode's webpage at salute.to slash talks. Salute Talks is produced by Josh McCormick and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen.